And the last time we saw David trying to get the Ark of God into Jerusalem, and uh, it was improperly transported, there was some failures, but then, of course, they, they recover from those failures, and <clears throat> then they uh, transfer the Ark the way it's supposed to be. And tonight, David wants to build God a house. That's the crux of this, but there's so much more to it. And God has other plans, as he often does, as sometimes we have our plans. We even have spiritual plans, and he's got that latitude to reroute them. He's a sovereign God. And the sooner we learn that, especially as believers, the more we'll be free. When we come under his, his protection and his guidelines, and we understand how he operates, and we're of the same mind, it really brings freedom. It's such a paradox, but it's so true. And in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when the king, King David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around. I'm going to stop there. So David had struggles for many years from varied enemies, some from outside of Israel and some from inside of Israel. And of course, we know that even in our own lives, when those attacks come from within they hurt a lot more. There's a lot more pain involved. And that certainly was the case with him and Saul. Uh, it was that internal, they were supposed to be related, they were both Israelites, and I, I would argue that that was probably the most painful part of David's life. But we have seasons of life, right? Ecclesiastes tells us that. The Bible tells us that. We have our ups and downs. And sometimes when we're getting pounded, you know, we just look for that reprieve. And we tap out, God, I need a break. And he's there. He's there to refresh us and give us rest when we're exhausted. So this is a good season in David's life. We continue. The king, King David, said to Nathan the prophet, now we're going to see more of Nathan as the chapters go on, how, what crucial role he has. And I, I love about Nathan is he's a strong inside. Uh, even though it, things could go bad for him, gives the king bad news at times, We'll see later on, he still is, uh, has that inner strength that uh, he still continues to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. So the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. <clears throat> so King David was living in a pretty good home. He had cedar and uh, I don't know what the houses looked like back then, but apparently that was a status symbol. And although David has his faults, we find that he's often thinking about God. And the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. Even with all his mess-ups, God was, was, was often on his mind. Of course, God is not limited to a tent, uh, curtains, the ark of God, and, and we talked about the ark uh, last chapter. You know, it was that kind of furniture box with gold and the cover, the mercy seat with the fashioned angels. It must have been gorgeous to look at. Uh, very ornamental. And God said, I'm going to dwell in between the cherubim, in between those fashioned cherubim. Isn't that amazing? God can be omnipresent. He can be everywhere. But he also could say, listen, my physical presence, part of me, is going to be over here as well. And that's the kind of God I want to serve. He's got it all covered. So... My question is, what do we spend our spare time thinking of? Do we often consider God? Do we reserve him? Listen, before I was a believer, I didn't know God. 
I only knew him when I was in a lot of trouble. And then I would cry out to him. And I did things I shouldn't have done, and I was suffering for it. And I would get mad when he didn't change my circumstances. But I didn't have a relationship with him. He didn't owe me that. Now it's a different story. I can't tell you that I pray for hours a day. But my thoughts often go to him, and especially big decisions in my life. He's there with me. I, I can feel his presence. He's, he's guiding me. It's been a wild ride, I can tell you. But David shares with Nathan the prophet his thoughts, and Nathan's response is basically, go for it. The Lord is with you. And that was true. The Lord was with King David. However, in this specific instant, instance, Nathan didn't check with God, as we'll see. Verse 4. <clears throat> but it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle, in all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel. Have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the first thing that we find is Nathan was wrong. <laughs> God was with David, that was correct, but God did not want David to build a house. He didn't fully pray this through. And sometimes we have to give the man of God a break. And we have to, Nathan was a great man of God. And he made an assumption, and God corrected him. But Nathan was faithful to correct his mistakes. I remember my pastor, and he would change his mind at times, he would change his mind at times, and I would get frustrated at times, and I didn't understand until I became a pastor. And I started changing my mind. And you know, a person will come to me and say, hey, we should do this, and it sounds like a great idea, but I didn't pray it through. And then when I pray it through, I have to go back to the person and say, you know, I can see some issues with that. Um, you know, give me some more time in prayer. And sometimes I have to say no. But see, that's the beauty of, of checking with God. Now, you know, I, I often pray ahead of time. When I pray, I say, Lord, you know, look, look at my future decisions that I'm going to make, the big ones especially. Uh, so I even pray before it happens that he's with me in those decisions, and it's been pretty good. The second thing we see is that God makes sure David understands that he doesn't need anything that man can offer, although God does want our hearts. He doesn't really want stuff from us. He doesn't want religious exercise Sometimes people will memorize prayers or things, and, you know, if that's your thing, that's fine. Uh, or i got to do something for God. The truth is God wants our hearts. He would prefer that the stuff that we do for him, that we just kind of put it aside, and that our heart is always there for him. And that's very clear in Scripture. You, you hear about the heart. I think it's lebed in uh, Hebrew. It's constantly mentioned. It's a four-chamber muscle, but the heart also is, is the seat of our emotions, our will, our desires. It's all wrapped up in this one word. It's pretty fantastic. Verse 7 is interesting. What did God command his leaders to do? Not to build a house, but to shepherd his people. Keep them well-fed? No, a different type of shepherding, a spiritual shepherding. Shepherding according to God's word. And I think that we've seen that as we went through, um, as we've have we've gone through several successive Sundays of John chapters 14 and chapter 15. Jesus is very clear. 
He puts the world in two categories. He says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. If you don't, you won't. It's that simple. I want to be in the category where Jesus says, oh, you love me. That means I have to follow his word. That means I have to know his word. So the priests, the Levites, they were supposed to go to the children of Israel and teach them the law, teach them to love God's word. But also the kings and the leaders would also have to shepherd God's people as well. So the truth is that in the end, God will always let us know what he wants us to do. And sometimes it's not what we think. Verse 11. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. I don't even have this in my notes, but as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about the detail and the, and the concern that God has in our lives. And you might say, well, David was the king, of course. You know, God doesn't play favorites. The Bible is very clear about that. Did he love Matthew and Luke more than us? No, absolutely not. Does he have a plan for us as he do, did for them? Absolutely. So we start to see the detail that God starts to recount, you know, everything that he did, every place that he moved David, David's humble beginnings, how he brought him up, how he wanted him to be anointed. You know, David, I saw that pimple on your cheek when you were 12 years old. I put that in there. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I mean, this is, this is our God. He knows the hairs on our heads. He has them numbered. And when they fall to the ground, he knew that that hair fell to the ground. I think sometimes we have to meditate on that. Let that sink in to see how much God loves us and how he didn't miss anything, right? So this is what's going on here. So the third thing, basically, he says is, you know, David, I'm going to do to you or for you a few things instead of you building me a house. And David really put the cart before the horse, and I'm going to start to build that case of how God had to make sure David understood. You have to remember, David was the king. At a snap of his fingers, kill him. That could happen. At the snap of his fingers, he could command his armies, you know, go to that border and fight that army. He had ultimate sovereignty over the kingdom. Now, as he, you know, as men come to him and they bow to him, I think God had to make sure he understood as God, he was sovereign over that kingdom. And he was the one who moved David and who made him successful. A little perspective check for David. Now, this brings us to the Davidic covenant. This, a covenant is just basically an agreement. It's a contract. Uh, there were other covenants made with men of God. You look at Adam, the Adamic covenant, and there were certain things prescribed there. The Noahic covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. So here you have your Davidic covenant. So let's break this down and take a look at what's going on. But before that, um, I just want to look at verses 8 and 9 and just go back to this momentarily that God made sure that David knew that he was the one who was going to bestow the blessings. Again, he, let's look at the order, David. You know, follow my lead. Okay? 
And I think that David also needed to have a heart check. David had to remember where he came from. David had to remember his beginnings. Just to digress for a moment, you ever been at work and somebody gets promoted and they act like a completely different person? You ever see somebody rise in politics who came from humble beginnings and they act as if they you know, were ordained or, or you know, God just put them there? I think sometimes when we rise to certain levels, we have to remember where we came from. And that's the biggest frustration. And I know that if I talk to you after service, you'll tell me the same thing. Yes, I've seen it at work. Yes, I've seen it in my family. Yes, I've seen it in these places. All of a sudden, the person gets to a certain point and as if history got sanitized and washed away. Now, David here was, was incredibly humble. But I think that, again, David needed a perspective check. So let's look at these incredible promises. And then we look at David's prayer and his thankfulness, and we see why David's complete attitude, he's like butter. He's completely changed. He's so receptive to the Lord. So number one, in verse nine, he says, I'll make you a great name like the great men of old. Now we look at Moses and Abraham. Nobody can forget them. They had great names. David also had a great name. And Moses and Abraham were considered friends of God because they loved what God loved. They wanted to please God. So I, see, I think that David falls into that, that category. The second thing about his great name is David came from the line of Judah. Now we know Genesis 49.10 tells us that the Messiah would also come through the line of Judah. So there's a great name going on there, that family name. Two, in verse 10, he was going to give a land or a place for his people. In Genesis 15, the land was promised to Abraham's seed. Now, as we go down Abraham up to David, here the promise continues through David's seed. It's the same line, okay, the same genealogy. Today, why is it that Christians, I mean, real Orthodox, um, you know, Bible-believing Christians, what do we naturally do when it comes to Israel? Today, we support Israel, and Jewish people can't understand that. But they're starting to pick it up that their, their best friends are the conservative Christians, the Bible-believing Christians, because the Bible says, God said, this is going to be your land, and there's no expiration date on this. I'm not changing it. I don't care who inhabits, inhabits it afterwards. It is your land. I promised it to you. So again, there's organizations in Israel where they're, they're, they're amazed by American Christians who support them. All right, so, you know, God's word, if he didn't change it, and he says it's going to be like this forever, then that's what we have to believe, no matter what the political winds are. Three, in verse 11, he says, I'll give you rest, or to settle down, to have rest from your enemies. There was also that promise of spiritual rest in the Messiah. You know, Jesus in Matthew 11 wants us to, to take off that baggage that we bring to the cross, to lay down that yoke, to... those burdens that are holding us down. Jesus is like, you know what? Leave that on the ground. Here, take mine. How does that feel? I can move around in this, Lord. Seems to fit real nice. Oh, wow. So spiritually, that's how he wants us to live. There's that rest, that spiritual rest. You know, all your life you've been searching for something, and then you come face to face with Jesus Christ, and when you become a believer and you start to grow, you say, this is what I've been looking for all my life. It's that rest. There's, I tell you what, I studied this and I was pulling my hair out because there's so many levels to this and I'm trying to nail it down and it's God's word, man. I'm just like, oh, I'm just going with it. 
I was grabbing onto that roller coaster and just up and down. And like, this is pretty good. And there's a lot here. Uh, four, in, in verse 11, I'm going to give you a house. David already had a house. Didn't he just say that? He had a house of cedar. It's a different type of house. He's going to give him a family. He's going to give him a spiritual house. Now, some of these terms start to blend. House, uh, seed, descendants, uh, dynasty, kingdom. So I'm going to try to parse it, to separate it. But as we start to continue through this, there's, there's a very similar meaning. And I'm going to try to make sense of it as best I can. Verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, remember Saul was a man of the flesh, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Seed, descendants, throne, kingdom forever in verses 12 and 13. David's seed would literally become the Messiah. God took his only son, loved the world so much, John 3.16. He gave his son to the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And when he gave his son to the world, he put him in that bloodline, the genealogy, boom. And and Mary, you're going to be with child. Um, The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, will give birth. And Mary could trace her lineage back towards the kings. Very impressive, Lord. (laughs) He can just interrupt human history, do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then just let it happen. Only he can do that. Nobody could predict where they're going to be born before they're in the womb. Impossible. All this stuff was predicted about Jesus. Uh, It's it's pretty neat. So we look at uh, blessing and protections are in there as well. They're sprinkled throughout this. And after verse 12, and this is why I kind of broke it up, is we start to see, and this is where we have to put on our thinking caps, because he's speaking about David's son, his seed, Solomon, who's going to build this house, this temple. But he also flip-flops between Solomon and Jesus because he's the ultimate seed that's going to have this unending kingdom, which Solomon couldn't have had because he died a long time ago. And that, that kingdom ended for Solomon. So we have to, we have to watch this. In, in verse 14, he says, if he... If he commits sin or iniquity, of course, he's not speaking about Jesus. He's speaking about the kings, you know, humans that he's got to chastise and deal with. Uh, We see in verse 16, the unending dynasty. Now, David's dynasty, so to speak, David, Solomon, and then the kingdom split into two. uh, The ten tribes up there in the north in Israel and the two tribes down in the south, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And what happened was there were competing kings where they should have been unified. But thanks to Solomon and his sins, God allowed the kingdom to be split. And there was a lot of problems because of that. So a little, a little history of, of Israel there. Um, I think the Assyrians came and completely overran the northern kingdom in 722 BC. You can find this in your history books. You can find the different successive dynasties throughout the Middle East. So that was the end of the kings in the northern kingdom. 
several more years, in 586 B.C., was the Babylonian siege on the southern uh, two uh, tribes. And the last king down in the southern area was Zedekiah. So this, this thing ends up getting, it, it, it's it, the dynasty's over with. Then the, the Babylonians take over, and the, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and who's there today? Any kings? But this is what we find, is that Jesus fulfills this. Jesus comes in that bloodline, and he starts that, he, he breathes life into the monarchy again, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Just because he came in the form of a lamb the first time, doesn't mean he wasn't the king. Okay, So this is what's going on here. Um, the everlasting kingdom in verse 16, how does this happen? Of course, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We know that he will rule with a rod of iron. This is in Revelation 2, but it also refers back to Psalm 2, two scriptures that speak about this. So Jesus will come again, and he will rule as a king. Uh, the other thing that comes into play here. It's just so cool. You just grab different parts of the scripture, man. And they were written by different men in different ages in different geographies, and they all triangulate. They all line up. Amazing stuff. The last one, here's the coup de grace, is Daniel 9. That last Shabuah, that last week in the Hebrew, that last group of seven years, that right now we're in a pause area, the 69 weeks or the... Uh, 490, 483 years have already passed from the Persians allowing the Jews to go back until Messiah the Prince. And then when the Messiah was cut off, that 69th year went into pause. And we've been living in that age of grace or the age of the church. But the Bible tells us, we look in the book of Revelations, the seven start to continue again. It's a little confusing. Send me an email, talk to me after service, and I'll, I'll kind of do it on the dry erase board. But that's, that, that last year is going to come into place again, that seven-year period. Okay? So, and then and after that, the Lord's going to, he's going to be ruling uh, physically and literally on the earth. Um, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's just, you know, it takes a lot of years to study it. So it's pretty fascinating. Okay. So what do we have here? This is actually a good witnessing tool when you talk to your Jewish friends. I have a lot of Jewish friends, and, and uh, you know, we have some great conversations, and, and they admit to me that they're, they're stumped. Uh, but Zedekiah, how many thousands of years ago did he stop ruling? If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then who picked up that Davidic dynasty? This incredible gap that has to be accounted for. And because Jesus is eternal, you know, before he was the babe in the manger, he lived... He, he had no beginning. He, he was the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Because he breathed that eternity into that Davidic line or that dynasty, it just continues to flow. And then, of course, forever. You know, God's going to make new heavens and a new earth, and it's going to be incredible. So that's what you, you've got to ask them. If, if Jesus was not the Messiah, then who, who takes the ball for David's line? Because it got cut off a long time ago. What do we see here? we see that God had a lot of great promises for David. And those promises blew him away. I'm reading this stuff thousands of years later, and I'm blown away. I can imagine when David received the news, and, and, and Nathan's just telling him and telling him. I can picture him saying, oh, wait, wait what do you mean? Keep, you know, keep talking, but, but explain that. And, and you know, it must have just knocked him down, because we can see that in his response as well. And I'll say this as well. There are some great promises in the Bible for us as well. 
It didn't end with David. It didn't end with the disciples. It didn't end with the apostles. Okay? There's great promises for us in both the Old and the New Testament. And there's, there's plenty of them. They make books about this stuff. You know, sadly, some Christians walk around and they think that God is punishing them. They think that they have a dark cloud over them and they, um, they have this kind of dread. But God wants to give them so much more than that. And I don't condemn them. I, I feel sorry for them because, you know, I have empathy. Because God wants them to just be, you know, empowered, invigorated. And for them to know how much he loves them and how close he is to them. Especially if we're in his word and doing his will. And trials come, they come from the evil one. We have to parse where the, the trials are coming from. Okay? God does not come to torture his people. He comes to take us through the, the, the valley of the shadow of death. You know, and it's dark and it's scary and, and we have to continue going. And God says, I'm right here next to you. But we have to believe that. We have to live that. We have to give him over the reins and the sovereignty over our life to experience that. Now, First Chronicles 17, I read that it's a parallel scripture to Second Samuel 7. It basically elaborates why David couldn't build the house. Other reasons. The other reasons were that David was a man of war and a man of bloodshed, and Solomon was a man of peace. So God wanted Solomon to build the temple. Okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, Solomon in the Hebrew is Shelamo, which means peaceful. That's his name. And even though David was a man of war, God still blessed him. Blessed him. And my question to you is, does, is there any less hope for us? David was a man of war and a man of bloodshed and a man who sinned and a man who messed up numerous times and he was running the kingdom, and God still blessed him. So my question to you as an individual is, is there any less hope for you or I? And the answer is no. There's plenty of hope for us. 17. I just want to read this again. It says, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. You know what? Nathan didn't cut any corners. He gave him the good and the bad. He didn't just give him the good and say, well, the king might get mad if I say this. God said no. You know, God said he's going to give it to somebody else. He gave him the good and the bad. Why were there so many false prophets in Israel? We do a study on, on Israeli history. The answer is because there was a monarchy. And because the prophets, if they said nice things to the king and told him everything would be well, when the Babylonians were invading, false prophets said, we'll be fine. God's true prophets said, no, we're not. And they were locked up. And they were thrown into wells. And they were beaten. And some of them were killed. But they told the truth. And Nathan told the truth. I could just picture this guy, no nonsense. He was very meticulous about what he heard from God. And he made sure that he articulated everything that the Lord said. He wanted to get it exact, exactly right. Nathan deserves a lot of credit. God doesn't like your plan. He has one of his own, not knowing how the king would take it. And I would say this today, that pastors are doing a huge disservice from the pulpit when they only want to say nice things. Pastors need to have the courage. It's tough. Listen, on a Sunday, the balconies filled. I got a lot of faces looking at me. So you don't think I'm under pressure? But I've got to do the right thing before God. When I counsel one-on-one, -on -one, I've got to do the right thing before God. I've got to tell people the truth. Because that's what God, because when I die, I've got to face him. 
There's going to be nobody standing with me and saying, oh, we like Pastor Joe, he's a good guy. He always made us feel good. It's just me and him. You got to tell the truth. You know, Heather did the, the um, study on Esther. She went before the king, even though she was the queen. If he did not summon her, she could have lost her life. And she said, if I die, I die. This is why God put me here. I need to be bold. I need to tell the king this. This is very important. And you know what? God honored her. God honored her. Luke 6, I love quoting this. Jesus said, Woe to you when all manner of men speak well of you. For so did the fathers to the false prophets. Christians, we need to get some courage. Like Nathan, like many men and women in the Bible did, we have to have courage. And we have to truly trust that even if our peer group hates us for a time, that God will strengthen us. Right? God will strengthen us. Actually, the word comfort, transliterated from the Greek, the old, I believe it was Latin, means with strength. It doesn't mean stroke my hand. It means lift me up. It means strengthen me. It means give me courage to speak boldly. That's what comfort means. We've, in our society, we're a whiny society. We've taken it into a whole different direction. It's not what the word means. Personally, when I'm going through, when I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders, I don't need anybody stroking my hand. I need them helping me and say, God's going to lift you up through this. That's what I need. As I'm getting crushed, I don't need my hand stroked. You know what I'm saying? Verse 18. I'm going to start cutting in and out of this one because I I really want to hit some of these points. Here's David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, first of all, he sat before the Lord. He probably went to the Ark of the Covenant, got as close as he possibly could. Maybe he was on the other side of the curtain because he wasn't the high priest, and he sat before the Lord. He said, I want to be as close to God as possible. I really want to talk to him. He really had a heart after God. I love this guy. Some of the kings couldn't care less. They didn't care. The law was in the the temple. The temple was in disrepair. Don't care. I'm running my kingdom. I'm the king. Listen to me. David, he went and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Wow. Who am I? That who am who am who are any of us that the Lord cares so much for us? It's it's humbling, but it's an honor and it's uplifting, all wrapped up in the one package. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? In the Hebrew, it, it gets it can be it can be choppy but he is just so blown away by what the Lord is saying to him. He's so digesting this. No doubt he's emotional. If I didn't know better, I'd say David was Sicilian, like me, but, <laughs> but he was a Hebrew. He just was, he just was you know, just pouring his heart out to the Lord. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. He realizes that God is not some, and he's known this for a while, some impersonal, capricious. There's some religions today where they say, well, God is not our father. He has no feelings. He's capricious. He can hurt us without a moment, and, and we just have to submit to him. David speaks about God's heart. Does God have a four-chamber muscle in the middle of his chest? No. He's speaking about his heart. 
My God has a heart. He loves me. He, he, it, it's a visceral feeling towards me. 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There's none like you, God. Well, the Syrians had God, and the Philistines had gods, and they had statues to their gods. And David's saying, there's, there's none like you, Lord. It's only you. 23, who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for you great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. God is in the redemption business. So even before he sent his son to the earth, he still was in the redemption business. As, much, as many times as Israel messed up, as many times as they openly, flagrantly worshipped other gods and insulted God, he always gave them a chance to repent and to turn. And he does the same thing for us, even more so with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You know, we, we can't fall so far from grace. It's just not possible. Well, God can't use me. God's done with me. God hates me. He'll move on to somebody else. Can't fall from grace. His grace is just so powerful. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. When we hear the voice of God, when Nathan's just started telling David, with Nathan's voice, but Nathan heard it from, from God himself, and he's, he's reiterating it to David. He's hearing the very words of God. It changes him. And you know what? When we get close to God, it changes us too. And that's why Jesus said, ask anything in my name, but according to my will. Ask for as much of the Holy Spirit and God will give it to you. When we experience God, we start to be in harmony with the way God thinks. And then when we start to pray things, they're not selfish. And God grants them. He wants to grant them. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. So this is David's response, his perspective. There's humility. He's just amazed. He's enthralled with the blessings upon him, upon the nation of Israel, and even mankind in general. You know, God's blessings are so amazing, he sees his insignificance in comparison. But he also sees his significance. It's a paradox. When we realize how amazing God is, we see how small we are. We get a perspective check, but as small as we are, God made our soul. He made our frame. He made our bodies. He made our minds. He cares for body, soul, and spirit. I'll tell you what, our arrogant elected officials could learn a lot from this. 
we get hit with more storms, more shootings in this country, more civil strife, more of the country pitted against itself, economic collapse, and all their solutions don't include God. What a shame. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray for God to humble this nation, humble its leaders. I, can't, I see them parading before the television, all of them, and it, I can't watch it. I've got to turn it off. Their arrogance. They don't have any solutions. Why was the, 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 the Israel blessed so much? Because their leader humbled himself to God. Oh, that our leaders would do the same thing. God help us. That we would be praying for our leaders every day. David calls himself your servant. The lips of arguably, at this point in time, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He probably was on his knees. Your servant, Lord. Thank you. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Why is this so important that God had to build David a house? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had to come through that house. So it had to be exactly to God's specifications. That's how important it is that the Christ came to the earth to save us from our sins. A few things to look at as we close. One is to accept God's will. David had to accept God's will. And God will often change our plans when it comes to spiritual matters. And we need to accept that as well. I've been disappointed before. I wanted to go in a direction and God changes it. And maybe at first I'm a little frustrated or concerned or is that really God or did somebody do that? And eventually I just accept his will, say it's good. And I'll tell you, sometimes a year later I look back and I'm like, I'm so glad we didn't go down that road. God really, you know, I, I still, it's still amazing to me. Two, accepting spiritual disappointments. A few things that people do when they're disappointed spiritually. Number one is they can accept it and have the right response. Or two, they can be crushed by it and not see God's hand in it. Or three, they won't take no for an answer and they're going to get it no matter what. And that's really probably the worst of the three. And that's where, that's where more catastrophes happen. And we don't let God have his way in our life. Three, when we honor God, God honors us, always. Four, God's blessings. Now that we're towards the end, does anybody think that they're out of the realm of God's blessings? I tell you the truth, you're not. From the youngest of you here to the oldest of you, God wants to bless you. And five, Going back to what we said before, I believe that David's perspective, you know, and I've been there, believe me, I've been there where God tries to show me something and I, you know, I, I, I dig my heels in and you know what, it's just not good. Not good. And honestly, I don't hold anything against him that's ever happened where I resisted him. It was my own fault. But David, and then there's been other times, and I want to live more like this, where we humble ourselves in the sight of God. We trust his will. His will is good. And you know what? Things may not get really easy in the temporal world, but we're in a groove. He's with us. He's guiding us. He's leading us. He's shining the light. He's helping us to understand. And that's where David is, was, and that's where we need to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. And it's so amazing that this happened 
oh, some 3,000 years ago. How many books can you read that are 3,000 years old that have any semblance, any parallel to our lives?